0: believe that true wisdom comes from God in his word to us why then do we forsake the consistent study of Scripture why do we ask everyone and try everything seeking wisdom in the midst of trials instead of seeking God church this is the biblical definition of a fool Proverbs 1 7 says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge Fools despise wisdom and instruction. You see, what Proverbs is saying here is that you begin to have true and beneficial knowledge when you fear God. When you revere him as great and holy and awesome, because he is. But if you despise wisdom and instruction that can only come from God, plain and simple, it's foolish. I know everybody's going, honey, did he just call me a fool? No. No. I didn't. But if you don't seek wisdom from God, he considers you foolish. If I don't seek wisdom from God, he considers me foolish. That's scripture. Especially when we're going through trials. Especially. And this is what James tells us here to ask of God. He already knows that we lack wisdom and he knows where we can get it. And I don't understand why we do this as humans. But almost every time we face something tragic, when we face a trial or when we face a tough, life-altering decision, basically, anytime we face anything that we consider out of the norm, we seek counsel everywhere and anywhere but in the arms of our dear Savior. And James says, listen up. I know you're facing difficult times. I know you're having trouble at work. I know that your relationships are breaking apart, and I know your kids might be doing the wrong things and are far from God. I know that the medical diagnosis is not good, and I know there's people out to persecute you for your faith in Christ. But, dear brother, dear sister, if any of you lacks wisdom on how to deal with those things, if any of you lack wisdom on making tough decisions, stop asking your unsaved friends, stop asking strangers, stop asking your girlfriends, ladies, Men, stop asking your buddies, especially if they're ungodly. Stop asking the bottom of a bottle. Stop seeking wisdom and counsel from everything and everyone. Ask God and he will give to all generously and without reproach. Church, that's not to say we can't seek counsel from godly people. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what James is saying. That's not, God would not say that either. But if it's a secondary option to seek God instead of the first thing we do, it's wrong. In fact, if you happen to ask somebody, a good way to tell if they are godly is their response. You say, oh my goodness, I'm facing a hard time. I got trials, I got problems, my kid's this, my wife, my husband, whatever. I don't know what to do. Hey, can you help me out? And if they say to you, yeah. Brother, sister, have you sought the Lord? Go back and talk to that person after you seek the Lord because they're godly and they're looking to God first and they're pointing you to God first. But if we're willing to seek counsel or wisdom from something or someone before God, we're being foolish. Let me see if I can illustrate this for you a bit. Church, if you've seen our... Excuse me, read the very good book, Pilgrim's Progress. Raise your hand. Oh, man, we're going to have to do a study. (laughs) It's a very, very amazing book. It's very, very long, but it's very neat. It's a fascinating book. And John Bunyan, the guy that wrote the book, he wrote it from prison in the mid-1600s. And the reason he was in prison is because he wouldn't stop preaching and worship the state. And it's an allegory of the life of a Christian. In fact, the main character's name is Christian, His wife's name is Christiana, and they are clothed with rags, and they live in the city of destruction. Christian has a great heavy burden upon his back. He opens the book, the book, the only book, and as he reads, he weeps and trembles. He consistently tries to console his fears of death and judgment as he reads in the book, but he just can't seem to do it. And as he walks day in and day out in his field, reading, crying, praying, he happens upon a man named Evangelist who tells him which way he ought to go in order that he can flee from the wrath to come. And so as Christian continues on his journey, he's met with all kinds of troubles, all kinds of pains and trials and temptations, and he's exhausted. Church, if you're an exhausted Christian, amen. He's exhausted, he's sore, he's tired tired from multiple near-death experiences. And Christian sees from afar off a Mr. Worldly Wise Man who dwells in the town of Carnal Policy, which was in close proximity to his hometown of the City of Destruction. And Christian and Mr. Worldly Wise Man, they share much about where Christian comes from, why he has this huge burden on his back, and how he can get rid of it. Christian is tired, he's weak, He's seeking relief from his burden that seems even heavier than it did. And thus did Mr. Worldly Wiseman speak to him and convince him to go a different way. Let me read to you out of the book what it says. This is Mr. Worldly Wiseman speaking to Christian. Why, in yonder village, the village is named Morality, there dwells a gentleman whose name is Legality, a very judicious man and a man of very good name, that has the skill to help men off with such burdens as thine as from their shoulders yea to my knowledge he hath done a great deal of good this way Aye, and besides he hath the skill to cure those that are somewhat crazed in their wits about their burdens to him as I said thou mayest go and be helped presently his house is not quite a mile from this place and if he should not be at home himself Well, he hath a pretty young man, his son, whose name is Civility, that he can do it to speak on as well as the old gentleman himself. There, I say, thou mayest be eased of thy burden, and if thou art not minded to go back to your former habitation, as indeed I would not wish thee, thou mayest send for thy wife and children to this village, where there are houses now standing empty, one of which thou mayest have at a reasonable rate. Provision is there, and cheap and good also, And that which will make thy life the more happy is to be sure that thou shalt live by honest neighbors in credit and good fashion. And every Christian was like, man, that sounds delightful. Where do I sign up? Well, when Christian gets to this hill that he sends them to, uh, it resembles Mount Sinai. It's burning with smoke and fire, and there's crashes of lightning. And he becomes very afraid, and he becomes sorry that he listened to Mr. Worldly Wise Men. Not only that, his burden now feels all the more heavier because he's gone well out of his way. And he comes to this hill seeking the judicial prudence of Mr. Legality in the village of morality. You've got to read the book, church. But if you want to know what this morality and legality sounds like, sounds like this. I'm a pretty good person. I mean, after all, I don't do what they do. My sin's not bad as theirs. Mm-mm. I always do good deeds and i act properly i've been dressed nice i'm really not that bad church if you ever struggle with that thought read romans 3 10 through 16. anyway back to christian so as he stands there trembling right under this mountain hoping it doesn't fall on him and crush him here comes along the way evangelist again what happened christian what are you doing they share various exchanges and at the end Evangelist sets out to explain to Christian who he met. And here's what he says. I will now show thee who it was that deluded thee, and who it was also to whom he sent thee. The man that met thee is one worldly wise man, and rightly is he so called, partly because he savoreth only the doctrine of this world. Therefore he always goes to the town of morality to church, and partly because he loveth that doctrine best, for it saveth him from the cross. And because he is of this carnal temper, therefore he seeketh to pervert my ways, though right. Now there are three things in this man's counsel that thou must utterly abhor. One, his turning thee out of the way. Two, his laboring to render the cross odious to thee. And three, him setting thy feet in the way that leads unto the administration of death. Evangelist explains that willingly turning away from the way that leads unto life and and turning to the way that leads unto death is to reject the counsel of God. It's to seek counsel and wisdom from all other sources but the one whom perfect counsel and wisdom come from. Church, if you want to be rid of your anxiety, if you want to be rid of your indecisiveness, and if you want wisdom to make the right choice, wisdom to live rightly before God, if you want to face trials and persecutions well, If you want wisdom, why don't you ask? Let me give you a simple yet profound process I employ in my life. Number one, realize God is God and you are not. That's something we should all memorize and remind ourselves of every day. Number two, pray for crying out loud. Pray. This is how I generally start my prayer. Lord, we both know the only thing I can do apart from you is screw everything up. So please be merciful to me and impart unto me true wisdom that can only come from above. And then after you've done those two things, seek counsel from other godly people. Because you've already sought it from God. You've already acknowledged him as God. You've sought his wisdom. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Now you seek counsel from godly people. And if you ain't got godly people in your life, church, you're spending time around the wrong folks. You need godly people in your life. When you see God first, it really won't matter after that what happens, because you sought wisdom from the sovereign creator of the universe, and who James says will give to all generously and without reproach. All. Not just you or me or you or you. Everybody that asks will receive wisdom from God. And when you do that first, when you seek God in preeminence, that is in everything first, God comes first. All that comes after will make more sense, or at the very least, you'll have a godly peace about it. So the first question James asks us is, why, why don't you ask? And I don't know, like I said, as humans, we succumb to what I commonly call the human condition. This is where we run around life trying to do life without the instruction manual freely given to us and then wonder why we have so many problems. But the next question I want us to see James asking us here is, why do you doubt? Why do you doubt? So look back at the text. We're going to look at verse 6. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Just like the but James used in verse 5 to indicate that we are indeed lacking something, So, too, here he indicates the same thing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, okay, so that's what we're lacking. Why don't you ask God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to you. So, too, here the word but indicates a lack of something. And the text is very clear. James says, but you must ask in faith without any doubting. Why? Why? Well, because if you have doubts that God is on the throne and that he's not able, why would you bother asking him in the first place? Sometimes I'll be explaining something to our five-year-old, and he'll look at me just as t- intently as he can, really just taking it all in, paying attention, right? I'm like, this kid gets it, you know? Spend a few minutes going through it.
1: And then after all that,
0: he furrows his brow, looks real seriously, I mean, says, Dad, I just don't believe you. <laughs> what would you even bother asking for, man? Because when you ask somebody something, you are saying that you have faith that they have the answer. But then all of a sudden you just don't believe them? It's the same thing James is saying Christians ought not to do when they ask God. And I want to focus on the word James used here that we translate as doubting. Because this is very important. The word doubting here means to hesitate, to pause or hold back in uncertainty unwillingness so to help out we could essentially read the verse like this but he must ask in faith without pause without holding back without uncertainty or unwillingness for the one who is uncertain or unwilling is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind and there's church there's so much in this tiny verse you know I could preach an entire sermon on it but I'm not gonna don't worry But I do want to briefly mention one very important point that this verse makes, and then unpack the rest for you quickly, but slowly. The reference to being driven and tossed by the wind, that's the same teaching found in Matthew 14 and Ephesians 4. In Matthew, Peter crawls out of the boat onto the water to walk on water towards Jesus. Right? He sees his Lord coming. Lord, if it's you, call me and I'll come. He comes. But then what happens? He sees the waves crashing, and uncertainty and hesitation overcome him, and then as a result of his doubt, he starts to sink. Jesus saves him, says, Why do you doubt, you of little faith? And then in Ephesians, Paul reminds us that we should know Scripture well enough as Christians, so that we're no longer tossed about by various doctrine, which is a fancy word for teaching, by the craftiness and deceitfulness of men. And when James says, ask without doubting, that's exactly what he's saying. Ask knowing that God is able and that God will provide you with what you need. But here's a quick caveat I have to make. This is not your Janis Joplin, Lord, buy me a Mercedes-Benz, my friends drive Porsches. Nor is this a health and wealth prosperity gospel where you just name it and claim it. That's not what it is. This is not a word faith movement which is speaking things into reality if you have just enough faith. Okay? That is not the type of asking James has in mind. In fact, nowhere in Scripture when we're told to ask God is that ever the mentality. All of those are anti-biblical doctrines taught by heretics and false teachers. This is a firm understanding that God is God. We're not. He's capable of anything and everything. Amen, church? And in the context of this book, it is asking God to provide you with godly wisdom to go through the trials you face with godly wisdom character to face the tough decisions we all have to make with godly discernment and to overcome the temptations we face with a godly response do you see how it's all focused on the lord here it's facing down anything this life can throw at us and acting in such a way both internally and externally that glorifies god magnifies christ and sees us sanctified by the holy spirit That's the purpose of this asking of God in the context of this book and scripture. Now you understand why we could camp out there for a long time. But I want to show you what doubting doesn't look like. And you all are probably familiar with this story. It was December 1776. It was a desperate time for George Washington and the American Revolution. The red tag Continental Army was encamped along the Pennsylvania shore of the Delaware River, exhausted, demoralized, and uncertain of its future. The troubles had begun the previous August when British and Hessian troops invaded Long Island, routing the colonial forces, forcing a desperate escape to the island of Manhattan. The British followed up their victory with an attack on Manhattan that compelled the Americans to again retreat, this time across the Hudson River to New Jersey. British followed in hot pursuit, chasing the Americans through New Jersey, and by December had forced the Continental Army to abandon the state and cross the Delaware into Pennsylvania. With New Jersey in their firm control and Rhode Island successfully occupied, the British were confident that the revolution had been crushed. The Continental Army appeared to be merely an annoyance soon to be swatted into oblivion like a bothersome bee at a picnic. To compound Washington's problems, the enlistments of the majority of his militias under his command were due to expire at the end of the month and the troops returned to their homes. Washington had to do something and quickly. His decision was to attack the British. The target was the Hessian-held town of Trenton just across the Delaware River and during the night on December 25th Washington led his troops across the ice-swollen Delaware about nine miles north of Trenton. The weather was horrendous and the river treacherous. Raging winds combined with snow, sleet, and rain to produce almost impossible conditions. To add to the difficulties a significant number of his forces marched through the snow without shoes. And The next morning, they attacked the south. Our attack to the south, taking the Hessian garrison by surprise and overrunning the town. After fierce fighting and the loss of their commander, the Hessians surrendered. Washington's victory was completed, but its situation precarious. The violent weather continued, making a strike towards Princeton problematic. Washington and his commanding officers decided to retrace their steps across the Delaware, taking their Hessian prisoners with them. The news of the victory spread rapidly throughout the colonies, reinvigorating the failing spirit of the revolution. The battle's outcome also gave Washington and his officers the confidence to mount another campaign. On December 30th, they again crossed the Delaware, attacked and won another victory at Trenton on January 2nd, and then pushed on and pushed on, defeating the British. Although not apparent at the time, these battles were a decisive turning point in the revolution. The victories pulled the languishing revolution out of the depths of despair, galvanized colonial support, shocked the British, and convinced potential allies such as France, Holland, and Spain that the Continental Army was a force to be reckoned with. Church, I find it interesting and noteworthy that it says to compound his problems, the enlistments of the majority of his militias were set to expire and go home at the end of the month. Washington had to do something, and quickly, his decision was to attack. You see, the reason I shared this is because it touches on two very important concepts. One we covered last time, and one we're covering today. Circumstances are not everything. They don't make you, they don't break you. No matter how, tri- how many trials you face, there's purpose in the pain and in the suffering. Always is. In Washington, he faced a very difficult onslaught of trials that very well could have been or become his undoing, especially if he was unwilling or uncertain or hesitant. If he doubted, he could have easily decided to give up. He could have easily decided to start across the Delaware only to backtrack and go back. He could have decided to do nothing. But in all of this, he decided to cross a river and attack the British. He didn't second guess. He didn't hesitate. He crossed the river, and the rest is, as they say, history. You say, well, Pastor, that's all fun and well. He was a great man and a wonderful general. That's not me. We may not be generals, but I disagree. Every one of us has the potential to be great, but hear me. In the wisdom and discernment and obedience to God, if we ask him for the wisdom, he will give it and pardon it to us. You need only ask. That's what James is saying. Ask without doubt. Don't doubt God will not provide. He's God. Solomon did the same thing. As soon as he took the throne, he was like 20 when he took the throne. And what was his prayer? Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David. Yet I am but a little child. I do not know how to go in or come out. Your servant is in the midst of your people which you have chosen. A great people who are too many to be numbered or counted. So give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, to discern between good and evil, for who is able to judge this great people of yours? Church, you want to know how to ask in faith without doubting? Again, realize God is God and we are not. That's the most important. Because when you realize he's God and acknowledge him as God, you'll seek him as God. Second, pray. Use Solomon's prayer as an example. Lord, your servant is but a little child. I don't know much of anything. Please give me understanding. Please give me a heart and please give me discernment. Wisdom. And then after you've done those two things, act. Do what needs to be done after you've sought wisdom from God without doubting, knowing that he will provide what you need every moment of every day. You don't even have to think to breathe. Now think about that. That's God providing everything you need every moment of every day. All right. James so far has asked us, he says, why don't you ask? Why do you doubt? And the last question he asks us is, why are you double-minded? Look back at the text. For that man, verse 7 and 8. For that man ought not to expect to receive anything from God, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. The word James uses here for double-minded means to be two-souled. And scripture constantly refers to our heart in various contexts. It makes us us. It's essentially who we are. The soul is our personality, our desire. Everything that we are comes from the soul. So for us to be two-souled is a pretty serious thing. And the concept is like riding a dual-purpose bike. You've got two seats, two sets of pedals, two handlebars. It'd be like two of you on there, and both of you riding the opposite way. That's what James is talking about here. When you're unsettled in your Christianity, and your soul, you're 2 souled or double-minded, you are trying to fight yourself to go opposite ways. It's like saying, I love the Lord, but. I serve the Lord, but. I'll obey the Lord, but double-minded. And here's what I want to do quickly. I want to show you what a double-minded man does not look like. I don't know if you've ever heard of a man by the name of Polycarp, but this was a second century theologian who, according to many sources, was a direct disciple of John, the same John that wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd, Gospel, John, and Revelation. And he lived from AD 69 to 155. He was a bishop at Smyrna. Polycarp was regarded as one of the saints and church fathers, and his name in Greek means much fruit. Listen to how Irenaeus, one of his contemporaries, describes him. He said, I could tell you the place where the blessed Polycarp sat to preach the word of God. It is yet present in my mind with that, what gravity he everywhere came in and went out, with what was the sanctity of his deportment, the majesty of his countenance, and what were his holy exhortations to the people. I seem to hear him now relate how he conversed with John and many others who had seen Jesus Christ, the words he had heard from their mouths, end quote. You see, Irenaeus reports that Polycarp was converted to Christianity by the apostles, was consecrated a bishop, and communicated the way, or with many who had seen Jesus. And he writes that he, Irenaeus, had the good fortune to know Polycarp when he was already advanced in years and Irenaeus was young. Polycarp was a devout Christian who never seemed to struggle with doubt or double-mindedness. In fact, when God would have him give the ultimate sacrifice, he stayed steadfast and true. But when he was given a very simple ultimatum, burn incense to the Roman emperor or die, he chose death. All he had to do was recant his belief and burn incense, that's it. But he refused to do it. So like good Roman fashion, he was martyred. They built a stake, filled the Colosseum. They even gave Polycarp another chance while he was tied to the stake and fire was mere inches from the kindling he was standing on. Come on, Polycarp. We like you. You're a good dude. People listen to you. Just, Just recant your beliefs. Burn incense. It's not a huge deal. Or we burn you. This was his response. Eighty and six years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? You threaten me with fire that burns for a season, and after a little while is quenched, but you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. So they set it ablaze, but he didn't burn up, so they actually had to stick him with a spear. But before the life went from Polycarp, he said, I bless you, Father, for judging me worthy of this hour, so that in the company of the martyrs I may share the cup of Christ. There was no double-mindedness in him at all, not even in the face of persecution and death. Those that are unable to settle their soul when it comes to the, what they believe, when seeking godly wisdom to face this life, as James says, you can expect to receive nothing from God. Polycarp got exactly what he expected as a devout devout follower. He got to share in the cup of Christ. In church, in our day and age, in our Western mentality, I don't think we treat that how it should be treated. To suffer for Christ is the highest honor a Christian could experience aside from being welcomed into the kingdom of God. Paul says in Philippians 1, 29 and 30, For you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Paul wrote that from prison. James knew this, which is why he makes sure to call attention to our doubting hearts and our double-mindedness. You want to know how to not be double-minded and unstable? Again, realize God is God and we are not. Pray and ask God for wisdom. It sounds simple, and it is, but it seems to be the hardest thing to do. And last, which is most importantly, be loyal to your king and him only. Let me close quickly. Church, God is good all the time. Amen? He promises that if you need wisdom, all you have to do is ask, and it will be given to you generously and without reproach. When it says without reproach, that means it don't matter if you ask him a hundred times a day. He's not going to be like, oh my goodness, this person again. He's not going to do that. He's going to delight to give you wisdom because you're seeking him. He doesn't need us to ask him because he needs to feel important. He needs us to ask him so that we realize only he can give it. And he will give it. So ask him. Don't be double minded then realize God is God and we are not. After that, seek Him and act in accordance with what He says and be loyal to your King. Church, the only way any of this is possible is when you and I realize that we're sinners that stand in deserving of judgment. Hell is our eternal destination when we're not in Christ and we need to realize that. We then submit to the Lordship of Christ. Saying, God... Uh, Jesus is Lord that doesn't make him Lord he's already Lord it's us submitting to that and realizing that and then acknowledging it in our actions and then you follow him in truth and obedience in the power of the Holy Spirit because church as I mentioned earlier start my prayer all the time Lord the only thing I can do according that we know of is screw up without him that's all of us church If we don't seek his wisdom, if we don't ask him, how can we get it? If we ask with doubt, why would he give it? We're doubting he can provide it. And don't be double-minded. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for the grace and the mercy you've shown us. Thank you, Lord, for giving us this opportunity to hear from you again. Father, I pray that by your spirit, um, Lord, that not only uh, will your children hear you, Lord, but as James says later on in his book, that they would obey you. Lord, that we would not only be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Lord, we heard today that we must ask you, because only you can give true wisdom that's beneficial. Lord, we must not ask the world. Father, we know that we must not ask in doubt, but we must ask in faith, knowing that you are God and that you will provide everything we need. Lord, please help us to remember not to be double-minded. Please help us to remember that you are God and you are God alone. Lord, let us act that way. Let us embrace that, obey that, seek it. And, Father, let us share that with everybody else that may not know. Thank you again for the opportunity to be here, Father. I just ask that you would bless these as they go and that you would seek uh, the hearts of your people to be changed and turned to you so they can serve you in obedience and faith. Thank you for all that you do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Church, you are dismissed.